1: Welcome to the Politics Love Guys, the a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Hey, everyone. Before we get to my interview with Tyler Cowan, I wanted to give you a heads up about something. When we do our weekend news analysis show, There's never a good excuse for bad audio, because all of our regular hosts have high-quality microphones and we record our ends of the podcast locally so that we're not at the mercy of Skype's call quality. But that's not the case when we do interviews. After Tyler and I finished talking and I pulled up the audio file, I realized that there were some issues with the audio. I consulted with the sound engineer and I spent many hours going over the entire audio track in increments of, well, less than a second, making literally hundreds of tiny fixes. The end result, which you'll hear in a minute, is way better than what I started with, but there are still clearly problems with it. I apologize for that. I considered not running the interview at all, but Tyler is a, well, brilliant guy, almost intimidatingly so, And I decided that even with audio glitches, my talk with him was almost certain to be more interesting and more rewarding to listeners than anything I could put in its place. I hope you agree. And now, on to the interview. My guest today is Tyler Cohen. Tyler's a professor of economics at George Mason University, and he also, of course, runs the most excellent Marginal Revolution blog and podcast, Conversations with Tyler in addition to this, he's a regular contributor at Bloomberg View and has written a number of books, including The Complacent Class and Stubborn Attachments, which I had the pleasure of talking with him about in previous episodes. And today, we're going to be discussing his most recent book, Big Business, A Love Letter to an American Antihero.
0: Tyler Cowen, welcome back to the show. Thank you. My pleasure.
1: You know, in the book, the setup of the book is essentially that you look at Five common critiques of big business, and those would be fraud and corruption, unfair CEO pay, unrewarding jobs, monopoly power, and crony capitalism. And then you have two chapters that focus on specific industries, being big tech and finance. So I thought we could sort of follow that more or less outline by looking at fraud first. And great. You know, of course, there's this constant stream. Of stories about this, uh, Volkswagen and emissions, and Wells Fargo with signing people up for accounts they didn't uh, they they didn't uh, ask for, which you mentioned in the book, and just this re- week, a couple days ago, I was looking at the New York Times, and Deutsche Bank is accused of laundering money. Perhaps I mean you see this everywhere on the business pages. So it sure does seem to me, and I think to a lot of people, that big business is just rife right with fraud. That's not exactly the way you look at it, is it?
0: Well, I do think there's a lot of fraud in business and big business, and we should actually punish that fraud more severely than we do. That said, I think on average, big business lowers the level of fraud in a society. For instance, it seems on average to be more honest and more reputation conscious than is small business. If you walk into a Walmart or a McDonald's, it's hard to think of what could be a more predictable experience. You're more at risk when you call in your local TV repair person to fix something, and maybe they'll overcharge you. Wealthier societies, also with bigger business, have higher levels of trust. There are plenty of contexts where the workers or the customers lie more than the businesses do. So if you go on Match.com, who's really doing the lying there, the company or the people filling out the online dating profiles? I think it's obvious. So I think business on that score is a little bit underrated.
1: And another point you make in the book is that, of course, big business is made up of people and it's not necessary. I mean, it would be weird to expect big business to be. uh, So uh, given that they're made up of people, people are just naturally what will engage in these sort of behaviors. And it's actually, I guess, the sort of structures and concern for reputation with big business you were talking about that makes them more trustworthy in that way.
0: And overall, they constrain each other more than they egg each other on. Yeah. There are numerous instances of the latter happening, right? So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, say uh, trading companies that encourage people to trade stocks too often to get commissions—that would be an example uh, where business works together to screw over the user or customer. Uh, but again, there's plenty of societies that don't have much big business, and you're much greater risk of being the victim of fraud in those places, right?
1: Let's say, I I thought that was a fairly convincing argument, but even so, it, it, you, know, you can make the counter argument or the, the further argument, I guess that, but big business fraud or lying is different, at least in a couple of ways, potentially. Number one, that businesses, big businesses might have more ability to harm us in certain ways. And maybe even more important, at least from my standpoint, is that they might actually be able to better protect themselves from the consequences of that harm. And I guess in this sense, I'm thinking of you know, big corporations can afford top flight legal representation. And so putting them at a very uneven footing to say a consumer who might want to bring suit against them, even if that consumer can in the first place because they might have had to sign an arbitration agreement or that sort of thing. I mean, is there, is there anything to that, do you think?
0: Well, there's plenty of litigation in the United States and any even decently sized business will have a whole host of lawsuits against it at any point in time. Even if the business can hire good enough lawyers, you know, to escape, uh, those legal staffs are a big cost. Compliance costs are significant. Some businesses really do work pretty hard not to screw over customers. There are exceptions. But if I think of the Amazon ordering and delivery experience. Well, a few times they've made a mistake. That's true. I strongly doubt that was fraud, but it's one of the most reliable, remarkable processes I think human beings have come up with.
1: And I think this relates to something we'll get at in a little bit is it seems to me that this would happen more naturally if there's a healthy, competitive environment in businesses, but Amazon's a little bit of a different case, something like we'll get to in a minute when we talk about big tech and competition, but keeping the other businesses honest, I mean, if you don't have a competitive environment, there's going to be less of a natural pressure to do that sort of thing.
0: Uh, That's true. I would note Amazon does case a lot of competition, even though it's a very large company. In any particular product line, uh, typically other than it's not dominant, And overall, Walmart's about four times bigger than Amazon in terms of retail sales. So uh, Amazon is always facing competition.
1: And and so really what we think of as the rampant corruption of big business, or at least what a lot of us do, is in a sense, I won't call it a media creation entirely, but it's at least in large part a media issue blowing it out of proportion. And it kind of reminds me of how oftentimes people think rates of crime are much higher than they actually are because that's what they hear about on the local news.
0: That's right. The incentive of media is to overemphasize the negative. In front of looking at media, one of the best arguments against big business, I sometimes joke, uh, another kind of circular argument, the best argument against social media is to see how social media discuss social media. <laughs> yeah. But uh, media are mostly done for profit and uh, they're quite often not reliable, most of all in their treatment of business itself.
1: So after you get into the issue of uh, of fraud and malfeasance, you turn to CEO pay, and that's been a really big issue, I think in part because if people just look at the numbers, I mean, there's no question that they've gone up in both absolute terms and compared to the pay of the average worker. The, the stat that I see cited all the time, and I believe that you cited in the book, the 1960s, it's uh, 20 or 30 to 1, uh, the ratio of CEO to average employee. And now it's somewhere around 300 to one. And so if I understand that correctly, if that must mean that if compensations fairly reflects value added, which we would hope it would, mm-hmm. that would mean that in the 1960s, a CEO was somewhere around 30 times more valuable than a typical employee. But today that same or a big company CEO is now 300 times more valuable. And I think a lot of people would just see that and, and just feel that on its face, it's almost absurd.
0: Well, but- I think it, 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 it's selling into a global economy, many more customers all around the world. So if you come up with a quality product, the return is much higher. Uh, but also information technology leverages the value of managers. They can direct assets for people on a much greater scale, due originally to fax machines and then email and now many, many other technologies. So I think it's quite plausible to think their productivity is that much higher. Wow, it's- and the class on the market test, keep in mind, the main way they're paid is they're getting either equity or options, but something tied to the value of the company. It's a market decision that the value of those companies is higher. Uh, I don't think the market is in general overpriced, and that's why they're getting more pay. In essence, the market has made that decision.
1: Yeah, and, and I think uh, another part of this that you, you mentioned is that you're not arguing that some CEOs aren't overpaid. And in fact, you make this great analogy. You call some of these executives the the Carmelo Anthonys of the corporate world. And I was hoping you could explain that a little bit.
0: Well, for those of you who don't know the history of the NBA, Carmelo Anthony was a budding superstar who had a lot of promise. And I guess he was a pretty good player, but he never quite panned out as a franchise maker. And he was put around a lot. Different teams were good for him. The New York Knicks, grossly overpaid for Carmelo Anthony. And you can say, well, Anthony didn't deserve the money he got. I mean, that's true. But it didn't mean the market is systematically wrong. The value of getting a truly great player like a Michael Jordan, a LeBron James, it's very, very high. And you're gonna choose after all the candidates. But it doesn't mean you're gonna overpay in the cases where you're wrong. And you don't know in advance. So a lot of CEOs, they're like Carmelo Anthony. Well, you know, they're not the next Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or whatever. But that's how you find talent, right. is by trying to do it. And of course, there are mistakes.
1: And in fact, at one point, you go a little bit further and you say, by some measure, CEOs might actually be underpaid compared to workers. And I think right away, people say, well, uh, what evidence supports that? And you actually do present some evidence in the book. And can, can you explain that a little bit?
0: Well, one way of measuring the value of a CEO is to look at cases of sudden and surprise deaths and to see how much less the firm is worth. There's some mm-hmm. which do that. Uh, there's some imperfections in that process, but it seems to indicate uh, CEOs are underpaid. A uh, surprise event's come along. You can look at, well, how much of the value of that event is captured by the CEO? Uh, again, there's some evidence from those quarters, CEOs are somewhat underpaid. All those are highly inexact, but our best sense is maybe CEOs mm-hmm. are receiving two-thirds of the value they bring to the company. You know, I'm fine with that. I would hardly consider that an injustice. But for who's just claiming simply flat out CEOs are overpaid? I think that's, you know, a sobering number. Yeah.
1: Well, in a way, I guess this reminded me, your discussion of CEO pay reminded me a lot of many of the themes in one of your previous books, Average is Over, uh, that whole superstar effect and superstar companies. And, and you refer to that in, in a way in big business when you talk about the um, uh, income inequality and you say, you know, it's not really about intra-company differences as it is between differences between what you term superstar companies and regular non-superstar companies, right?
0: Uh, You know, the best way to remedy inequality would be to have uh, more superstar firms, more superior performers. If you look at a company such as Google, you know, their janitors are paid much more than say janitors at the local high school, even though it might in the physical sense be more or less the same work. So one of the is to try to cut down the super firms. I want to try to breed more of them.
1: Right. Now, you mentioned CEO pay a, a little bit ago, and of course there's another argument about CEO compensation. It doesn't have to do so much with how much they get, but the form of it. And the simple form of the argument is if you pay CEOs in stock options, then they're likely to put the short-term stock price of the company ahead of what might be good longer term. And I've heard a number of people say, well, that's why we should get much more aggressive with what are called clawback provisions, where CEOs might have to pay back money under you know, various future conditions relating to profits or stock price and that sort of thing. And, and I was wondering what you thought about that
0: argument. Well, businesses are free to experiment with those provisions, and sometimes they do. But keep in mind, the share prices for companies already reflect a very long term perspective. So, you know, a company such as Tesla, which has never, really never made clear profit, uh, has a very high valuation. At times, it's been higher than for General Motors. It's because markets are looking for the long term, they may be overvaluing Tesla. You have all kinds of dot-com companies that in the past with no profit, sometimes just no revenue have had pretty high valuations. Markets are looking to promise or Amazon. Any markets on average get time length about right. Uh, if you think they didn't, it would actually be a way you could trade and make a lot of money.
1: Right. The next topic that you talk about in the, in the book is uh, the quality of work for people in big businesses and, and in kind of, researching, I was actually surprised to find that, that the majority of Americans do work for big businesses or work kind of work for the man in some way, shape or form. And of course, the common conception of that is, well, working for the man sucks the life, sucks the soul out of you. And it's just an awful thing. But you present some evidence that suggests something very different from
0: that, right? You have to ask, you know, well, does it suck compared to what? Yeah on people who are unemployed and their health is much worse they commit suicide at higher rates they divorce at higher rates they seem to be much more miserable i think most people want to work they want that sense of purpose they want the potential validation and even some of the competition it gives you a social network it's a way of connecting with people who are like you and you know the larger the company very often the better the chance you can do that uh so if you have an unusual interest or if you're gay or if you're, you know, of a particular ethnicity, uh, larger companies have more people, more possible connections. So, you know, on net, Americans are moving toward m- working more for larger companies. They get better benefits, usually higher wages. Uh, there's a lot of good reasons for that trend. And people don't just hate it. But of course, look, it's not all fun. There's a reason why they call it work, yeah. right? They You have to pay you to do it.
1: Well, and that's one, one point you make along those lines is, that we might actually rate leisure activities as more enjoyable because we don't do them eight hours a day. And, you know, that, that brought me back to uh, uh, Keynes's 1930 article about you know, economic prospects for our grandchildren, which you mentioned in the book as well. And for those who aren't familiar with it, it's a, it's a very interesting short read. But essentially, he sees a future where because of such rapidly rising productivity, 100 years hence most people could conceivably work something like a three-hour-a-day shift or 15 hours a week and, and be good. And I actually did a little research on the economic growth figures, and it, on, I actually found this on the Mercatus Center site, that the growth numbers, he's pretty dead on in where we're at, where he expected, but we sure don't see a lot of 15-hour weeks. And I was you had some thoughts on that. I, I was wondering what, what, why you thought Keynes got it so wrong on that.
0: People like to work. Uh, there are always new things for them to spend their money on. It's easy as an outsider, or kind of academic, as Keynes was, to think it's all a big waste. But you look at people's actual lives; they want that money. You know, they want a smartphone, they want cable TV, they want that extra vacation, and that's fine. And it's them producing for other people. I would say there are some countries, such as Germany, where people are working systematically less than Americans. Some of them is higher taxes. But I don't think that's all of it by any means. I think Germans do enjoy leisure more. And a lot of Germans are seeking out, you know, 28, 32 hour work weeks in a way Americans are not. Uh, that's a difference to be respected. But work has proven far more robust than, yeah. you know, most of the geniuses of the past thought it would. And I think that's a testament uh, to business and capitalism, actually.
1: Well, yeah, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because it occurred to me that one of the one of the critiques you hear usually from the, the further left is that that's exactly the problem is that work is so compelling because essentially we have been manipulated into becoming consumers first and everything else second and so therefore it's sort of a to use the kind of neo-marxist term a sort of false consciousness that business has created to basically sustain itself
0: there are plenty of people who drop out of the system and go live somewhere cheap and again you know more power to them but it's not what most of us do and this is maybe an ad hominem response. So, no, the group of people I've seen the most status status conscious, kind of competing in zero and negative some games, probably academics. <laughs> yeah. So no. traveling from that with the reality they see and thinking the whole world is that way.
1: Well, I, I certainly can't can't disagree with, with the, the academic's comment, that's for sure. Um but also, you know, it occurred to me that maybe one of the problems isn't is that uh our leisure time is of such sort of poor quality. This gets to another sort of further left critique. And that's that people are so wiped out from just this incredibly demanding work where we're always on. And especially now with, you know, with, uh, I mean, I, I have Slack on my phone, like a lot of other people and all those things that all people can do when they get home is just that they're, they're wiped, And all they can do is collapse in front of TV, which, doesn't exactly engender states of flow as opposed to doing something that's more engaging and fulfilling.
0: So, people are watching TV than had been the case. There's a, a downward trend there. It's strong. Uh, on have gotten more fun and more creative. Some of the people who are wiped out, they're wiped out because they really enjoy their work and they're putting everything into it. But again, the question is, do you have the option of getting a less demanding but lower paying job? Uh, for the most you do, you do more to the extent you live in a city or a populous suburb. That's been the general pattern of population moves. Harder to make that choice in a little rural city. Uh, there are a few people get injured on their jobs nowadays compared to the past. Backbreaking labor is, for many, many people, uh, not a part of their life at all. So you see, you know, positive trends in all of these areas. I'll probably be better if no one had to go out on that fishing boat? Well, right. yes. I actually think we'll get there with, again, you have to compare to an actual feasible reality. Sure.
1: Now, you you do mention, I think this is toward the close of your chapter on work, that there are some pretty significant problems with sexism, sexual harassment, and that sort of thing. And uh, do you think that the business community, big business in general, is acting quickly enough to address those problems?
0: Uh, quickly enough, not at all. I think it's been far, far too long, many decades. I mean, in some ways, quite a disgraceful record. And I, I, I don't want at all to be an apologist for it. And some of what happened, of course, happened in Hollywood, Harvey Weinstein and the like. Yeah. Uh, that's big business, too. So we need to you know, admit real sins. I would point out in terms, a lot of it has happened in government and nonprofits. Four-profit business, you know, probably has somewhat better checks. But I view that as a pretty bad record overall. I yeah. think we should condemn that and really work very hard to improve it.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: The problem is you've had men overrepresented as business leaders, so they don't see the other perspective as clearly as they ought to. Right. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Now, of course, some people's big problem with big business is uh, concentration and even in some cases they'd argue monopolies. And we mentioned Amazon before, you know, in online commerce. Of course, Facebook and social networking, Google with search. Uh, if you have a cell phone, there are two only two sort of top tier options: Verizon and AT and T. And and I, I guess I have two questions, and they're related. I think uh, first, do you think we're seeing increased competition? In fact, across a number of industries and. If you do, is there any good evidence you think that it's actually hurting consumers?
0: In most sectors, we're seeing either increased competition or steady competition. We could talk about all of the examples you name, but you know, Facebook—they're a major player, but first of all, the piece is zero, right? Yeah. You find more and more young people just aren't on Facebook at all. They still have totally meaningful social lives. Plenty of other social networks. There's Twitter. There's LinkedIn. There's simple email. There's texting on your phone. There's the good old fashioned phone call. Uh, plenty of options. It's a very contestable move. Snap, there are gaming sites. A lot of different things you can do and people are doing. Amazon is only a big books market. And in the books market, they're way, way cheaper than, say, Barnes & Noble. Partly in the book, I go through a number of these cases. I think one where there is more monopoly is hospitals. Mm-hmm. That's a big problem. I think we messed that one up. But most sectors, people have way more choice at better prices than they did 20 years ago, largely because of the internet. And I don't think greater concentration is a general problem for the American economy. Quite the contrary. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, certainly, certainly, in terms of price, you mentioned Google and Facebook. I mean, free—you can't be, you can't be free. Well, I guess I would say that, of course, there are some people would say the price is your privacy and you actually do consider that to be at least potentially uh, an issue of concern
0: right it's an issue of concern to me personally i would point out american consumers as a whole don't really seem to care much about privacy uh so they don't perceive themselves as paying a major price even now and uh you know if we had more competition across social networks i think we would end up with less privacy not more Mm that there would be fewer protections uh, more likely a chance that someone would be careless with the data, there would be less talent yeah. protecting that data. So you have to make trade-offs there too. I trust my data with more than I do, say, Equifax or my local hospital, right. much more.
1: Well, I mean, aside from that, though, some people would say, well, sure, Facebook and Google are free and all that, but what's, what's to prevent them from, once they have a very solidified monopoly to either charge or raise prices in the future in the case of Amazon, or, and this is maybe a more, a more significant concern, the fact that they don't have someone breathing down their neck, shouldn't that make them less innovative and less interested in improving their products?
0: Well, Amazon, for instance, has been remarkably innovative. They're the number one leading in cloud computing, and that helps other people start small businesses. So Amazon is, de facto, a, a foe of monopoly. And to, from being like a guy who sold only books on a no. slow-moving website in well under 20 years to being the world's number one leader in cloud computing, that's astonishing. Google gives us Gmail, has been a major driver behind driverless vehicles. Google Glass hasn't worked yet. I think some version of it will, whether through you know Google slash Alphabet or not. So these companies have not stopped innovating. They're doing a great deal in AI. I don't think any of them have a long-run business plan, you know, to raise prices. The goal is to have a broadly used platform and do more and sell more on it at pretty low prices. Yep. So people thought, like, oh, the day will come, you know, Amazon is going to charge so much for the uh, a twenty-seven-dollar book at Barnes and Noble is still seventeen dollars on Amazon. I don't see that price differential budging.
1: Right. Well, I mean, especially when we talk about, say, Facebook, for instance, the issue of network effects always comes in, or at least in a lot of discussions. And the argument is in the book, you, you uh, provide, I think, at one point, a list of these big former monopolists, essentially, that everyone thought would survive at the top of their industries forever. And it's, a, it's like a graveyard, essentially. But a lot of people would say, well, some of these tech monopolies are different because. Once you're locked in because of that network effect, I mean, it, it's almost impossible to start, say, a competing social network because the more people that are on it, the more valuable it is and so forth. I, do you think there's, that that's a reasonable argument?
0: Well, MySpace once had that network effect no. and where are they now? In Very recent times, we've had Snap and Fortnite arise. They're both used for social networking, not only, but they serve that function. Uh, we'll see how they do, but you know they're certainly having their chance to do well. And if you have a zero-price service survive for a long time because it's the best, like maybe Google Search will, will be the best for the next 20 years, uh, that me really is like so far from our list of major problems. Hmm. Like, oh, they were the best zero-price search service for 20 years. I don't think it's a problem at all. But, like, my goodness, when that's the case against big business, Uh, you know, I think you need a new case.
1: Yeah. 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 I I see your point. Now there is one and we're kind of moving into the tech uh, industry, but one thing I hear a lot about the tech industry is, well, their product is unique in, in another way in that it's highly addictive. And of course it's, you know, designed, optimized to be addictive. And that a lot of people would say, it's not good for us. There's the, the, the Nick Carr argument, you know, we're more distracted, we're more shallow. Some people would go further and say that it's led to, you know, cyberbullying and mental illnesses and, and anxiety, especially among the young who are, of course, the biggest users. And some people would look at this and say, hey, that seems a lot like the case people were making in a very similar way against big tobacco in the past. Uh, and I'm wondering, well, what do you think about that?
0: Well, whenever you have a major institution which does a lot of things and connects a lot of people, there will always be many criticisms of it. So you can take the telephone. You know, has the telephone been used to arrange murders? Yes. Has it led to the creation and sometimes sustenance of abusive relationships? Well, almost certainly. And so on and so on. Uh, Sometimes going to be connected with bad outcomes. But you have to look at net. You know, what's the benefit to the consumer? from, say, Facebook or other social networks, it seems it's very high. Uh, I don't think you can argue nothing ever goes wrong. Uh, But still, some of that responsibility is on its user. Uh, I don't quite like it when people say those are addictive services, like the thing we're addicted to is each other. I'm not sure addiction is the right word. You know, you want to have connection with other human beings. Uh, Facebook and other services can enable it. they are also quite new. Some of the lesser or more abusive sides, you know, I think will improve over time, just as, you know, we got better at making telephone calls, writing letters, sending emails, doing many other things.
1: Well, and it certainly seems, at least in the case of Facebook, and maybe I'm, I'm being overly optimistic here, but they're, they're moving into different areas with more encrypted conversation. They're moving into now just the cryptocurrency and, and so forth. And I'm wondering if this is in response to these pressures from folks who at least in part are are critiquing them for for providing the kind of service that they feel is being socially damaging?
0: If you want privacy on Facebook, just use their communications device, WhatsApp, which is the most strongly encrypted communication service in the entire world. Wow. And it's completely private. So uh, we give you that option, right? Not everyone chooses it. In fact, I use WhatsApp a lot. I don't use Facebook the page really at all. Uh, Others differ. And just the amount of choice like within Facebook, the broader company, is often neglected. You have a pro-privacy service within Facebook, the company.
1: Now, let's move into finance because, of course, the finance industry might actually get, I don't know if it gets more criticism than big tech, but a few years ago, certainly it was. And I I think, first off, it, it seems ridiculous for anyone to argue that, we, uh, we don't need a strong, big financial system, at least in some way. But I think what bugs a lot of people or what, what's at the, the nub of a lot of people's critique is that finance seems to be taking up more and more a, a share of the economic pie. And I, I did a little bit of digging, and it seems like from the 40s through the 70s, and of course, that's a period that a lot of people see as sort of a golden age for American workers and the economy. Finance's share of GDP was somewhere between 3 and 4%, but in the last decade, the recession aside, it's been around 65 to even over 7% of GDP, and I think a lot of people see this as basically, well, here's finance, this middleman that is, in fact, doing important things, but it's taking way too much of a cut, a disproportionate share. Uh, what do you think?
0: The appropriate measure is to look at the financial sector as a share of total wealth because financial institutions, they're managing our wealth, they're investing our wealth. And as a share of wealth, it's been pretty close to a steady 2% for a long time. Well, my wealth has grown relative to income in America because we've been at peace. We build things. We don't blow them up. A lot of them stick around, and we're wealthier and wealthier, and that's rising relative to income because of durability. Uh, financial sector looks bigger relative to income, but relative to wealth, uh, I don't see any particular problem.
1: Now, there's another concern, though, that people have is that all of our kind of best and brightest end up going into careers in finance as opposed to, what we often here, actually making things in the real world. Um, uh, there was an article in the 2018 uh, article in the Harvard Political Review, apparently 36% of Harvard's class of 2017 went into consulting or finance, which is, I should say, down from 47% right before the 2008 crisis. But that still seems, I think, to a lot of people, awfully high. Now, I don't know what the numbers are in in other Ivy League institutions, but I mean, is it a concern that, say, more than a third of the Harvard graduating class goes into these areas, do you think?
0: Well, I don't know what the levels should be, but keep in mind, finance allocates capital the growing sectors of the economy. That's a very, very important thing to have being done. And if a lot of uh, most talented students do that, I'm not sure it's the wrong number, but I would say this, more and more, we're seeing those students go into tech rather than finance. But I think the problem is if something else important comes along that you know tries to bid them away, it can do so. And to think that the person who goes into finance like, should have set up some furniture store in Cincinnati, I don't know. <laughs> That, to me, is not obviously a better use of their time. So uh, there are market signals. They're highly imperfect. There's a lot of experimentation. We see free flows in both directions. You know, it might be too high in finance now. I, I would grant that's possible. You know, people want to go into vocations where they're both being paid well and doing something useful. And America, you know, for all its problems, it has a pretty good financial sector and an amazingly good tech sector. And it seems to me the process of allocating labor is working pretty well.
1: Well, and, and of course, in talking about the financial sector, you you naturally mention that uh, the phrase "too big to fail" for banks, which was huge uh, around a decade ago, certainly. And you make a, I think you make a good point in the book that uh, having big banks is important both for competing internationally and that the fact that the U.S. is a world international or a world finance center is beneficial in a lot of ways. I think that many of us don't ever consider, but it seems to me with too big to fail, that was maybe a bit of a, I felt it was a bit of a misnomer. I would call it, and this is, doesn't sound nearly as good too opaque and interconnected to fail. Yes. You know, so uh, all these weird financial instruments, no one understood. And then, you know, a few, a few institutions start to fall. They take everyone down. No one knows what anything's worth. And, uh, I'm guessing you would at least maybe agree in part with that. But I'm wondering, if so, do you think we've done enough to make financial markets both more transparent and also to make it easier to kind of wind down financial firms that are failing without them taking down a lot of other firms with them?
0: Uh, No, I don't think we've done enough. And I think looking back, we should have been tougher in some ways. I think we should have imposed much higher capital restrictions. On banks. So they would have to lose a lot more money before the taxpayer would be on the hook in some way. And we didn't do that and we still could be tougher. So, you know, I would accept a lot of that criticism. Uh, I want to point out I don't think there is like a very easy solution, but even with a higher capital buffer, uh, a bailout might be required. And a lot of finance is by its nature opaque. Banks are in there as a middleman precisely because outside parties don't get the value of different assets and liabilities. So, I don't think we'll ever have a system of banking and bank regulation we're ever really that happy with, no matter how wisely we do it. But I would agree we should have been tougher.
1: And another, well, moving on from the financial industry, uh, you treat crony capitalism in a separate chapter. And that's one of these things that we get some pretty strong agreement on. I think both from the left and at least the libertarian right. And, and I guess a lot of this uh, is because you'd probably call this a lot of this rent seeking where companies try to use their political pull to get concessions, to get things that might be good for them, but not so good for the economy as a whole. And that basically distorts uh, the market, correct?
0: Yes, I'm completely opposed to this. I would have no farm subsidies, no subsidies for Amazon, no export import bank. But what I wrote on my paper was really a response to the people who just say, like, oh, big business runs government. Right. And that's really not true. Um, government is highly complex. A lot of it is shaped by voters. Corporations do have too much influence in a bunch of areas. But I also point out a lot of influence is pretty beneficial. Companies often want good things. They want predictable laws. Uh, they want something pretty close to free trade. Uh, often they want higher levels of skilled immigration so they can hire people or just have more customers. So uh, the kind of evil big business is running the government, ruling our lives. To me, that's very off, and I tried to rebut that view in the chapter. Yeah,
1: And one of the, I think one of the ways that you, one of the things you focus on at least in the chapter is you take a look at how much of our federal budget goes toward sort of, I guess we could call them people-centered programs, and of course the social security, Medicare, Medicaid being the big three, and that's more well over half of the budget. And I think, sure. you know, that that's important to point out. But on the other hand, there, there's this, uh, I don't know, famous, infamous, whatever report from the Cato Institute from back in 2012, where they estimate that the U S government spends around a hundred billion dollars every single year on what they call corporate welfare. And, and as I read the report, that was only direct and indirect aid to various companies and industries. And so I would imagine if you look at the overall effects, it would be even higher. I mean, and that's a couple hundred billion dollars. If you look at overall effects, that's, that's some pretty serious, serious uh, money, I would say. Right.
0: I've never heard through the estimate. And I, I know from experience, there are so many of these estimates that turn out not to be true, but you mentioned a hundred billion. If it is a hundred billion, out of a multi-multi-trillion-dollar economy, uh, I suspect, actually, that's in the ballpark. Again, I, I'm all for getting rid of that, but it's just not the mainstream uh, big business controls our government and, and runs everything. But it does have too much influence, I would say, agriculture, uh, big, uh, some community banks are some of the worst offenders. Uh, but I think it's overrated by many people, especially on the left.
1: Now. One argument that you make uh, when you talk about the influence of big business on government, you look at lobbying. And I I think you mentioned in the book that total lobbying is around $3 billion a year or something like that. And even if we pull in campaign spending, uh, both direct and kind of in the dark sector, it's still way less than somewhere around $200 billion a year that businesses spend on advertising. And then after you kind of draw this out in the book, you ask, well, if corporations have so much influence, why are are they spending this essential pittance on political influence and spending so much more on advertising? And what occurred to me about that, an answer to that question is, well, maybe that the marginal returns to lobbying, uh, lobbying spending, campaign spending, they diminish much more quickly than the returns due to advertising, because I would think that. You know, there are only so many policymakers, it's a limited number. And so at some point, you would, I would think, kind of flood the market in a way, whereas there's this huge market of consumers. And so the, the returns would still be pretty, pretty hefty, even if you're spending a couple hundred billion dollars, essentially, in advertising. Now, obviously, I'm no economist, but do you think there's maybe anything to that argument?
0: Well, something, but I think often in policy, business can't buy what it wants at all. Some big businesses do not favor the current trade war with China. You know, whatever one thinks, it's not popular in the business community. They can't buy their way out of that. Uh, they try to exert pressure on President Trump in different ways. Amazon in New York City, New York State had to leave. The company certainly had enough money. Just throwing money at that, those governments would have solved their problems. You know, they could have done it, but they decided, well, you know, we can't get our way here enough, and they packed their bags. So I think a lot of times those marginal returns are low, just because business has no real chance of getting its way, even if they were to spend more.
1: Yeah, and and you you actually you do look a little bit at some of the uh, some of the I believe it's political science research on business influence. And there's one study, and I I forget the names of the authors from I want to say 2012 that a lot of folks. Uh, a lot of folks cite as kind of uh, proof positive, but you actually have some issues with uh, kind of methodological issues, I think, with with how that study was, maybe not how the study was done, but certainly how it was reported. And if I understand correctly, the case you make is that uh, it's true that the poor don't get what they want in terms of policy, but for the most part, the rich and the middle class are kind of together on things, and that's what really drives policy.
0: Is that, am I oversimplifying oh. that? And again, that often may be mistaken. I would, you know, stress that myself. But the idea that our government is a conspiracy of the rich against everyone else or, you know, the top 1%, again, the, the numbers just don't support that.
1: Now, I, I don't think it's... I think it's difficult to argue that big business hasn't done an awful lot to improve at least the material quality of our lives. And, you know, then I think, well... Hey, the people in charge are pretty well compensated for that, so it's not like I feel any great need to 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 show them any additional appreciation. I mean, I I buy what they're selling at the price they're selling it at, and that should be enough. But but at the end of the book, you argue that uh, we don't really tend to see big business in these sort of impersonal terms, and I think this is a really interesting point because it's essentially the heart of your argument as to why big business is an anti-hero or just not even a hero to a lot of people, especially on the left. And I was hoping you kind of explained that argument you have about how we personalize big business and why that's a mistake.
0: Well, human beings probably evolved in very small groups earlier in human history. And we tend to moralize and we personalize and we attribute intention when it isn't there. And for, you know, earlier people, if there was a storm, maybe they thought it was the gods. So those are our natural instincts. And we apply them when it comes to business. We do business morally almost as if it were a person. In fact, we should have a more dispassionate analytical attitude and look at costs and benefits. We tend not to do that. We feel resentment. Uh, we apply emotional language to corporations. It's very hard to get out of that mindset. And I think it leads to be too critical. In America, you know, we're on the verge maybe of splitting up our big tech companies. To me, that would be a huge mistake. But that's the point we've gotten to because our rhetoric so easily turns negative.
1: Well, and one of your points about this is that big business itself has done some of this by making some very strong efforts to personalize themselves, to make, to make us see them as your friends, your neighbors, that sort of thing.
0: That's right. As part of marketing. Like, oh, trust us. Bring your money to this bank. We're your friend. We're like your family and it may make sense for an individual business but when the system as a whole does it people again have this false standard for what business should be you really should not judge it the way you would judge a family
1: yeah and you know and that at one point when i was making when i was making my my multiple notes in in the book i i wrote the word marketing in big red letters and circled it because it seemed to me that a lot of what people really hate about big business has to do with marketing being marketed to
0: Marketing can be phony or false yeah. or manipulative in different ways, and we're somewhat inured to that. But it can't help but rub off. One of my local bank—they're told to smile at me. They do. I kind of go away with a good feeling. Now, like maybe they actually like me. Maybe it's a, a bit of reality, a bit of a put-on. But I still go away happy. It's right. hard to really break from that mindset.
1: And and I think that yeah that that's a big part of it because I think a lot of us are aware of that. And we realize we're being emotionally manipulated and we resent it.
0: Uh, eventually, but we also welcome it. Yeah, I am. We yeah. turn not businesses which manipulate us in those ways. So right. we encourage it, right? There's a reason why they do it.
1: So it, that kind of love-hate love, hate relationship, I That's guess. Right. Yeah.
0: I mentioned an analogy with your parents. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have love going with their parents uh, and they transfer that to business too. Yeah.
1: So... In the final analysis, do you think it matters if most Americans have this sort of negative relationship or negative view of big business? I mean, some some might say, well, this is a good thing because if we are suspicious of them, it's going to provide a check on a lot of their excesses. And so we should actually encourage this, not discourage this sort of view toward toward business. And I, I can't believe you would believe that or else you wouldn't have Written a book subtitled uh, A Love Letter to an American Anti-Hero," But what's your thinking
0: on this? I feel right now we are too negative toward business. I didn't feel that way in the 1990s. There's been a real shift in the climate. Many more young people call themselves socialists. I don't think they really mean that in the literal sense. But it's a way of protesting that they're not really quite on board with all these features of capitalism. So I think we do need a corrective. And with my book, I tried to help provide that.
1: And do, do you think it's something, because it, it certainly does seem to be uh, a strongly youth-oriented thing, especially the, the move toward acceptance of socialism, and, and on the, the flip side, people saying that they're not in favor of capitalism. Is this, and this is going to sound, uh, that the younger listeners who feel this way, I don't mean to be condescending, but is this going to be something do you think that people grow out of? That, 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 God, I, I hate using that terminology, but I'm sure you know what I mean.
0: Certainly, I think it's to all of us, but it's not just well, look at Donald Trump. He's pretty old. <laughs> he, for CEs, he tweets against them. He doesn't treat them with the flair or desire to punish them arbitrarily. He can be very anti-corporate, anti-Bezos.
1: Uh, and, and, yeah, he's certainly anti. He's certainly not a huge fan of free trade.
0: Uh, he's with business when he feels business is on his side; otherwise, not right.
1: All right. Well, on that note, we will close. Tyler, it's always a pleasure talking to you and and I really appreciate you taking the time.
0: Thank you so much for being such a great reader and interviewer. That's it for
1: this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you like what you heard. Listener support is what keeps the show going and we truly appreciate it. When you become a monthly sustaining supporter of the show on Patreon, you don't just get our gratitude, you get a supporters exclusive bonus episode each and every week. Also, supporters at various levels can get additional bonuses like Politics Guys gear and access to a special supporters-only Facebook group. To learn more about all this stuff, go to patreon.com politicsguys, or you can visit our website, politicsguys.com support. Subscribing to the show also really helps, as does sharing episodes. Word of mouth is, of course, the best advertising, and we really would appreciate it if you tell folks about the show. Leaving reviews and ratings on whatever podcast app you use is also greatly appreciated. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that at mail at politicsguys.com. There's also our Facebook page where you can message us, and we're posting things throughout the week. It's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. Finally, we're on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Benji Fishman, and Andra Masker. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.